Wind and Tide. Hello and welcome to Family 360. A podcast of conversations exploring life together, parenting, and all the ways we are family to each other. I'm Rachel Cram, educator and founding director of Wind and Tide Education Community. I'm Roy Salmon, audio producer and founder of Whitewater Studios, and together we're the hosts of Family 360, interviewing specialists, artists, and storytellers. And now for this week's episode. Author and educator Tim Huff has lived his entire adult life on the front lines of social challenge, working between the busy and complex intersections of justice and compassion. Born and raised in Toronto, Canada, from a young age, Tim sought ways to connect and care for the homeless, struggling on the margins of his community. Now in his third decade of active involvement on the streets of Toronto, Tim speaks internationally to students, staffs, and school boards using a program called the Compassion Series. He has a very gentle and engaging Mm -hmm. speaking style. He does. He's also not typically who you see in the halls of an elementary (laughs) school. Not at all. Apparently kids often mistake him for homeless himself. Yeah, he tells a quick story about that in this episode, actually. Yeah, right. In addition to a number of books for adults, including Bent Hope, a collection of stories from people on the streets of Toronto, Tim's also illustrated and authored multiple award-winning books for children. He believes bringing children into conversations on social concern is key to how we will develop and grow our cultural capacity Mm -hmm. for compassion in decades to come. When it comes to compassion, we still have so much to learn. We have so much to learn. So here's our conversation with social justice activist and educator, Tim Huff. Well, Tim Huff, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Knowing what you do, I'm mindful of your time and I'm very grateful for this interview and conversation. It is a real honor to get this opportunity. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. I found your books and educational materials compelling. It was a pleasure to research your work, and I'm eager to hear what you have to say as we talk together. That's so kind. Thank you. Mm. So I know your teachings on compassion and social justice prompt a wide range of conversations and considerations, but I was thinking we might start this conversation with your street work with the homeless in Toronto, if you see that as a good path forward. Sure. In North America, this conversation about homeless is a good way forward because people are least compassionate about this subject. Okay. Okay. Of all the areas they're least compassionate, it's about homelessness. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. And then we can move into your most recent work in elementary schools with your compassion series. Do you feel that sets the stage well for where you want to go? That sounds perfect. Okay, excellent. I'm going to start with a question about your childhood because it's a question that makes people connect to you as a fellow human being. When we go back into our childhood, I think it's just a good rooting question. Sure, great. So here it is. Often our childhoods, the positive and the negative, they come together to shape who we are as adults. And so, Tim, I'm wondering for you, is there a story or experience from your childhood that has shaped the the highly compassionate adult that you are today. Absolutely. I'm from a blue collar family. You know, we didn't have a lot of resources in our home. My parents were young parents raising their family. But you know, my folks came home every day from work and they were so part of serving the community. Mm -hmm. Still did kids groups and kids clubs and meals on wheels and whatever was going on through the church or the food bank. They just served and served and served. So there was this model that said, uh, you don't have to have a lot to be someone who is serving and thinking of other people. So I take no credit for that, but I give all that credit to my folks. Mm-hmm. And they still serve in that capacity in their mm-hmm. 80s. They're just always thinking and serving other people even now. So 
it's their lifelong legacy. Hmm. Wow. What a beautiful legacy. And I bet they're equally proud of you (laughs) and what you do. Thank you. Well, I have here in front of me your award-winning children's book, The Cardboard Shack Beneath the Bridge, which is part of your compassion series for children. I thought a good way maybe to start into our conversation would be to read some of the really thought-provoking questions that you list at the back of the book to hear the answers that you might give to some of these questions. Sure. Yeah. I actually uh, take that book into schools and teach it to classes all the way from kindergarten up to grade seven and eight. Hmm. So sure, I'm glad to do it. Okay. Okay. Here's the first question. You asked this. Sometimes under bridges or near the main streets of cities or towns, you'll see things that look like cardboard or wooden shacks or even old tents. Perhaps you've seen an empty sleeping bag along with someone's belongings tucked away in a place that looks a bit scary. Who do you think might live there? How did you feel when you saw it? So, Tim, from your experience, who does live there? Predominantly, I would say those are chronic homeless or hidden homeless people. Mm -hmm. So uh, lots of teenagers and lots of adults and even lots of seniors. Every single person has a different story. Mm -hmm. Every single person. So all homeless people are all people who are in encampments or in cardboard checks are uniquely different. Mm -hmm. But what I do say is this, none of them, when they were little boys or little girls, dreamt that this would be where they would be. This was not the wish or the dream of their lives. What do you mean by hidden homeless? So hidden homeless is the group of people that I work with the most. They're not usually counted by the stats because they're not going into shelters. Many of them have been so physically, sexually, emotionally abused that they they won't go into wider communities where you would see them. And so they hide out in encampments and in places away. Mm-hmm. The hidden homeless are who I work with predominantly under bridges, uh, in foresty areas, places like that. Hmm. So how do they sustain themselves? And like, I think even food or clothes or even money. Well, they might pan for change in the day. They might go to a place for some food, a church or something like that, or a mission that's serving. But then they don't want to sleep somewhere where it's public, where they can be kicked or hurt or things like that. So they hide away. Hmm. When you're saying shelters are not a viable option, this could bring to mind for some people that phrase of Scrooge where he says, <laughs> uh, have they no refuges or resources or no prisons or workhouses. And I think we hold ourselves back from saying those Scrooge kind of things, but we can wonder, we can wonder why they don't access governmental or charitable resources that we might see as viable. Yeah. So if you couldn't trust mom and dad, mom or dad, to inherently not hurt you, why would you go into a facility and trust a total stranger? Mm -hmm. So there's that to consider. I'm not saying that's always the case, but I've known so many young people have told me, I say, how come you're not going into the shelter system? It's freezing cold. You need to take care of yourself. And they had been so abused, so hurt, that the idea of being in the care of strangers or among other strangers or closed in, they feel, again, safer on the streets than they even do in the shelters. Mm -hmm. 
And then a lot of people say, well, we should just scoop up the people. They don't know any better, especially the ones with severe mental unwellness and put them in there. And then I have all kinds of friends who are shelter workers who they're not there to be prison guards and to hold people in. So there's no perfect answer. It's the real answer is to do everything we can, but to get in front of the issue as well. Hmm. Well, and your response here speaks to the second part of your question that you ask kids to ponder when they see a sleeping bag and someone's belonging tucked away, which is how do you feel when you see a situation like that? And Mm. I imagine for you, Tim, your feelings have probably changed somewhat over the years when you see an encampment or a sleeping bag on the side of the road. What do you feel? I feel brokenhearted because the stats and the numbers, they get worse and worse. I really think we've not, as a nation, fully understood why this is happening. We have no poverty of resources. We could feed and clothe and shelter every person in the country many times over. We have the funds in our country to do that. Mm. But there's a poverty of relationships. And this is the heartbreak. Now, for me, when I work with homeless youth, so as young as 12 and up to 25 were the kids that I work with, Mm. nine out of 10 of those kids felt safer on the streets than in their homes because they had been sexually or physically or emotionally abused. Mm. Somewhere in, I think it was your book, Bent Hope, you made the comment that a lot of youth are homeless before they're houseless. That's right. And I think that ties in a little bit with what you're saying right now. They may be in an environment that includes a house, but it might not be a place where they necessarily feel safe. It's not a home. Yeah, well, a lot of people would guess that most people who are homeless come from poor homes. Hmm. And my experience has been that, while that is true, not having resources and be cared for does push people to have to do things and be places they don't want to be and live how they don't want to live. I've known many, many young people on the streets who came from extremely wealthy homes, but they were in abusive homes. So when I'm teaching to kids, for example, grade five and six, I say, tell me what your house looks like. And they will say, well, it's got this colored roof. It's got this many steps in the front porch. I've got this many rooms in the house. Okay, that's the place you live. And now tell me what home means to you. What does it mean when you say, I feel so at home? And at that age, they would understand. They start to say, it's a place I belong. It's a place I feel happy. It's a place I smile and laugh a lot. And then we are able to have the conversation. That is the difference between houselessness and homelessness. We have to just not assume that anyone we might see on the streets, they're all this way or they all came from this place. Perhaps we can dig into this a little bit further later on, but even thinking of that wider parameter of what it means to be homeless, I do think when we're talking to children or even as parents ourselves, recognizing that there may be children in our kids' classes that are feeling homeless, even though they still have a house, and perhaps not being a parent or a child that's always looking for the shiny, happy people, 
to bring home. Yeah. But maybe looking for somebody who's that kind of homeless mm. that you can befriend. Yeah. I get the opportunity to speak at a fair number of conferences for educators. And I talked about the school being a surrogate home for a lot of young people, mm -hmm. which means they might not feel like they belong when they're at home, but for six hours a day, they have a place they belong or they can laugh and they can feel good. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of educators have not entered in thinking about school as surrogate home, but culture and times have changed. And I think mm -hmm. it's imperative that that is part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, and that has been one of the tragedies of COVID is children not Absolutely. having, I, I think in Canada, they're saying something like 200,000 kids have fallen off the grid of school from the COVID crisis. It's terrifying. Yeah, it is. Okay, well, let's look at another question from your book, The Cardboard Shack. You ask children this question and consideration. In this picture, you will see a man with his hat in his hand. He is hoping that someone might give him some money. That is often called panhandling or panning. Some people think that it's okay and many people give a few coins. Many people are uncomfortable with it and do not like people asking for money. Whether you and the grown-up you are with decide to give money or not, it's always good to smile and let the person know that you see them. That shows respect. That's right. So, Tim, for you, when you see somebody panhandling inside the street, what's your response? Mm. Like, is it a good idea to give money? Because I think that's a question that goes through people's minds, especially when you drive by with your kids in the car, because we're role modeling a response, whether we give money or not, right. often not knowing what the response should be. Right. How, how do you respond? They're right there beside you. Yeah. My answer, which could be scrutinized by other frontline workers, but I'm telling you, this is 25 years of experience. This is what I tell people. Make sure you're safe in what you do. And then I tell people to follow their heart. If you feel in your heart that you need to give, then give. If you don't, then don't. The real issue is dignity and respect. Mm. You know, in the era I grew up in, the polite thing to do was if you, a homeless person was to pretend you didn't see them. You know, moms and dads would say, look away. They'd hold their kids' hands, look away, and just don't stare. And uh, I understand that there was some attempt at dignity there, but the kids weren't getting the answers. And so then they were just left with assumption and fear and wondering what's going on. And that just made that person a terrifying person to them and creates such a massive us and them scenario for kids to grow up with. Mm -hmm. So even to this day, I give people money sometimes, but I listen to their story for a while. I, I'm usually in a public place where it's safe and I can have a safe distance and have a conversation. I know many people offer to feed someone or to go get them something. So there's no perfect answer, but I'm not one of the people who says definitely do not do it. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you, Rachel, I do tell people this, if you are really burdened by this, Put a jar on your kitchen counter and every time you decide not to give a homeless person some change, when you go home, put the change in that jar. Hmm. Then at the end of the month or at the end of the year, do it with your kids or whatever, take that jar and give it to a mission that you feel absolutely great about, hmm. that you know it won't be used for drugs or something that you're uncomfortable with, but it'll be used for all the protections and cares that you feel good about. It's the idea that we do nothing that is a real issue. Mm. I love that suggestion. Thank you. I'm going to get a jar. <laughs> so where I live, we've just gone through a very cold spell, a lot of snow. Yeah, same and, here. And I think often when we have these severe weather conditions, we think of homeless people because we're so thankful to be inside. 
you mentioned the heat, especially in places like Toronto, is actually even more difficult than the cold. And you tell a really moving story about a boy named Thomas. And I'm wondering, would you want to share that story? Because I think it embodies much of what you've been saying. Sure. I mean, particularly in the ice cold winter or boiling hot summers, when we think about homeless, we do tend to go straight to the idea of how physically they're surviving. Hmm. But imagine the mental expense to be out there as well on top of it. And so the story you're referring to, Thomas, he was kind of dealing with both. The physical trauma was the outdoors, but the emotional trauma from the world that he fled from. So there was a record heat in Toronto. And if you knew the Toronto area, there's a place called the Don River. And one of the main arteries of traffic goes alongside of it. Anyway, there's a whole waterway and green space there. And he was encamped in there. And we hadn't had rain in ages. We had this, I think they call it a macro burst, where the rain just comes down in buckets and the flooding ends up like insane. Well, when I came upon him um, that day, I was out looking for him. The rain had ended, but the pools and the ponding and the flooding and the dips along the Don River was magnificent. And he was sitting on a rock just bawling. The rain had come so quickly that all his belongings were now gone. They'd all drifted away. They were down in the water and he had been swimming around trying to find them. So I promised him, I said, listen, man, we'll get you new stuff. We'll get you better stuff. Don't worry about that part. I know that's hard. It took him a long time to express why he was just so devastated. But, you know, he had some treasured belongings that he lost there. And among the few treasured things he had was a picture of his sister. She was 14 years old, two years younger than him. And she had fled the abusive home before he had. When his dad was drunk, she couldn't handle it anymore. So she took a picture of herself and wrote on the back, I'll die here. One day, come and find me. I love you. Hmm. And then when he fled, he took that picture with him. He lost that picture. He lost this beautiful, priceless, sacred (laughs) thing that he could look at and read. And it was gone. So reprocessed that. I walked with him through that as best I could, the heartbreak and everything. So anyway, uh, Hurricane Katrina came days later. And he was so moved by the fact that people were becoming homeless because of the hurricane. So he was so excited. He surprised me and said, look what I've done. He showed me a coffee cup full of change. And then he showed me the sign that went with it. It said, for Katrine is homeless because it hurts to lose everything. Mm -hmm. He was out there panning for change for other communities of people that had lost. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't tell you how many stories of young people I know or adults on the street who take care of each other. Mm -hmm. Their compassion for one another, their caring for one another is profound. I used to see it in the crack houses all the time. I used to go into crack houses looking for young people I knew that were stuck in some of the sexual exploits and the drugs and stuff like that. Even in in there, there were older guys who were like really messed up, but they would say, you know, that 13-year-old, he's back in the corner. You need to go get him out. Mm. Even in their despair, they were wanting to care for the other ones. There's a whole world of beautiful people that we are not getting to experience because of their brokenness. Mm -hmm. As you talk about this, 
what comes to my mind are signs that I've often seen, ones like you're describing with Thomas, ones that say things like, uh, God bless. Mm. Now, I'm embarrassed to say this, but sometimes I felt a little cynical about those signs, seeing them as slightly coercive. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's probably the intent, but obviously that is not always the case. Yeah. Uh, imagine someone who's living on the street at ground level is looking up at you and actually espousing the idea that God would bless you. And I think all those little signs, I think they're tokens. I think they're things we need to take to heart. Now, are there people being coercive with their signs? There are people trying to survive. Mm. And whether you see that sign as a blessing to you on a day you need to be told, God bless you, or whether you are able to acknowledge someone is trying to survive. And instead of saying like, F off and get out of my way, they're saying, God bless you. And there's something beautiful about that to me. There's a question that you pose to kids from your book that I think might connect in here. You refer to a picture. You say, here in this picture, you'll see the two men are sitting with their dog. Often people who are homeless have pets. If you were homeless, would you want to have a pet? Why? How might a pet be helpful? Is there any reason why having a pet might not be a good idea for a person who is homeless? That's a good question, Tim. I can see kids really engaging with it. It engages me. What kind of answers do you get? Well, it's, it's fascinating. This is perhaps one of the most fascinating teaching moments with this book. And we have to be careful how we express this to small children. But how many of you, if you had to sleep on the sidewalk tonight, would want to have a pet with you? We just ask the question and ask them to put their hands up. I'm telling you, if it's not 100%, it's 99% of the kids put their hand up. And so then we ask, why? And they give the answers so purely because if I was scared, it would take care of me and because I would have someone to talk to and someone to love. And it's amazing how some kids will say someone who can love me, mm. which is a beautiful response. So we go to that place and then compassionately, people actually at least have a concept in their head that this is why this is occurring. Then as you read, we go to the next question, which is, so why is it a bad idea? Well, where's the dog going to um, relieve itself? And what if they need a vet? And if you can't feed yourself, how can you feed your pet? And all kinds of things. But because we've gone through the first lens before we got to the second harder etched question is so much gentler than if we started with, why is it a bad idea to have a pet on the street? They answer so gently and children actually try to problem solve. How could you have a pet and not have all these issues? I've known people with rats and iguanas. It's not just dogs. Countless people have mice in their pockets mm -hmm. that they care for and keep because there's something life-giving. There's something they can take care of. You know, we all long to be in relationship, and this is a relationship that won't hurt us. Mm -hmm. You know, some missions, when we were running a program called Light Patrol, we actually had pet food donated to us so we could help take care of the pets. So it is a complex conversation. Hmm. And I'm just saying we have to have it compassionately and we have to have it thoughtfully. Hmm. It's all about cherishing one another. I think it's the great common denominator 
for all of humankind. This deep, soulful desire to be cherished. Mm. When I think of the responses that children are offering to your questions, Tim, it brings to mind this quote from Mahatma Gandhi that we use as inspiration to this podcast. And he says, if we want to reach peace in the world, we must begin with the children. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, it is. And I think you're doing that. I love how this question gives kids a chance to express the desire to be cherished, as you're saying, even to recognize that desire in themselves. Exactly. Now, I'm not sure how this works as a question, but when you're working, Tim, or when you're with people on the streets, do you sense that desire for connection? We tend not to say work with homeless people. The mm -hmm. terminology is always changing. Most recent terminology in my world would be serve among homeless people. Mm, I was wondering um, about that. Yeah. yeah. The language is always changing. It's impossible to keep up. But, but it's anyway, important. we're always trying to do mm. the right thing. But it's important, right? Mm. Yeah. And so we're always trying to do the right thing. Anyway, I'll give you an example. I started doing a Santa Claus gig when my little girl was three. Now she's 27 and I'm a grandpa. And I still do these Santa gigs. So I do them all over. But You wear a lot of hats. And beards. <laughs> That's right. And so the Santa thing's become larger than I ever imagined it would. But always on Christmas Eve, I go down the street as Santa. Hmm. And, you know, on Christmas Eve, when you go downtown, Young Street might be a little bit busy, but all the side streets everywhere else is abandoned because tourists aren't out and businesses are closed and people are with families and stuff like that. And a lot of our homeless friends that end up remaining on the streets are very stoned, are very drunk, have severe mental illnesses. And so they've not ended up in a shelter or a couch surfing or somewhere else. So they're out there in dire situations. Mm. And what do you think someone who is really not in their best space thinks when they see Santa walking towards them in the middle of a park? <laughs> For the most part, many of them actually believe I'm Santa. Wow. All right. Then <laughs> they, they talk to me as though I'm Santa. Anyway, Santa is kind of this cherished supernatural figure to them. And I always joke, it's the one point in time I actually feel like I am Santa. Like I don't want to blow it is what I mean. Like as opposed to a guy who has no acting chops, who just seems to have fell into this. But it's quite something because I'll spend time. I brought gifts or supplies. And the one thing that happens when people have no facade, so the alcohol is taken over, the drugs taken over, and their mind is not as healthy as it might have been. They sit and they talk to Santa about when they were a kid. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, they start to tell me stories. They'll tell me stories about sitting on their grandfather's knee while he played the piano and they sang Christmas carols together or baking cookies with their mom or going to a Christmas Eve church service with a parent. And they share all these beautiful stories with tears in their eyes and sometimes inebriated and all kinds of things. But they always go back to this place of where they're cherished. Because I think when things are stripped away from us, when all our pride and ego and the things that sometimes hold us back, we all have that in our soul to say, I, I want to be cherished. Mm -hmm. And I think it's what is missed when we look at programs and how we spend our money. And the real question is, how are we going to cherish people? And it means just being with them right where they're at right now. And that includes relief work. And relief work is about cherishing. Mm -hmm.
Thanks for listening to Family 360. I'm Rachel Cram, and today we are with author and social justice educator Tim Huff. Our next episode is with Dr. Lacey Finborgo discussing spiritual conversations with children, how we support our kids in experiencing wonder and connection with nature, others, and themselves. Join us. And now back to our conversation with Tim Huff, who's about to tell a poignant story from his award-winning book, Bent Hope. You mentioned, I'm going to see if I can actually find the quote here right now. You, you, you make this comment about people as they walk by others on the streets. It brings to mind the story of the Good Samaritan. You say, I always wonder why they don't wonder, commenting on the people that walk by. Maybe they do. And then you say, while most children are authentic enough to stare wide-eyed, point, and look terrified, the extreme opposite response from most adults is almost comical. You have this story about a girl named Amy, and it's a disturbing story. It is. But I, I, think, it, I think it's a reminder of how we don't recognize that need for cherishing as something that's common to all of us. Yeah, that is truly a heartbreaking story. It's interesting you bring that story up. This is the depth of a lot of the stories of the friends I've had on the street and my experience among them. Mm-hmm. So... I used to put my kids to bed with my wife and then I would go out and work through the night. And so one night I was coming towards Amy in downtown Toronto and it was kind of off the beaten track. And there were some university students, uh, four university students. I could see them getting right near to her as she sat on the curb and starting to hassle her and nudge her with her knees and push her and tease her. And they were drunk out of their minds. Mm -hmm. And I just had this welling up that something bad was going to go on. You could just see it. And she was sitting with her head down and they were being so abusive just in their comments and pushing against her and stuff. And then the unthinkable happened. One of them actually opened his fly and he urinated on her Mm -hmm. in his inebriation and with the coaxing of these other guys. And she just sat there and took it. And now I'm racing down the road to get to where it is. And everything I'd ever learned about de-escalating a situation was gone from me. Mm -hmm. I just ran into all four guys flailing to make a scene and fist throwing and all kinds of stuff that might even get you fired nowadays from a job. But I just couldn't take it. Mm -hmm. And those guys took off after that. They left, still laughing and drunk. They could care less. Well, she sat there and wiped her head with her sleeve and just went on to the next thing. How broken do you have to be that you would process someone urinating on you as just another thing to get through? Mm. Now, for me, I didn't know that I handled it right. Even as I look back on it now, it's traumatic for me. I can't imagine what it is for her. Mm. But we need to consider that there are countless Amy's on the street who have been so broken that even something so vile would just pass by as another moment in another day. Hmm. I think most of us are angered by injustices and we want to bring about change, but then the next steps don't occur because we get stuck in knowing how or whether we can make a difference. Hmm. You make this comment in your book, and I'm just going to find it. Okay. You say this. Long before our biases and jaded opinions develop, 
Long before we categorize people with labels and by issues, we all start in the same place with a wide-eyed innocence and acceptance of childhood. Hmm. So, Tim, I'm wondering, what is your mission for bringing compassion to children? What a beautiful question. Hmm. Thank you for that. The ultimate mission is that we could raise a generation that would look through what we might call social justice issues or humanitarian issues, first and foremost, through the lens of compassion. Hmm. They don't jump straight to judgment and fear and assumption. And so how do we have our children look through the lens of compassion first and foremost? Is the idea that grown-ups, adults, teachers, parents, grandparents, they need to be willing to learn with their children. Hmm. You cannot teach compassion if you do not live compassionately. This is not a math topic that you say, here you go, this plus this equals this. You have to live it out. And our kids can read it. It's okay to say, I don't know the answer. Let's explore this together. And that brings us as adults to this really humble place that will allow us to become compassionate. But as soon as we are marred by our own jaded feelings about a situation, without becoming truly educated on the topic, because we've been brought up to think this way or the media we listen to leans into this kind of theory. I don't know how we raise compassionate children. Mm. The great void in society is gentleness and goodness. I was to say, what do I think children are missing most? I would say gentleness and goodness. We are not being examples of that. Mm. And so I think we got to ask hard questions of one another and of ourselves. It's imperative that we look at the world through our children's eyes first and foremost and say, how are we going to let them see this world? Mm -hmm. I'll never forget the time I was speaking in a class. I look a bit scruffy and I'm usually just wearing jeans, a baseball hat and long hair and a beard. And I did an entire class for, I think it was grade twos and threes. And then at the end, we had a question and answer time. And one of the kids asked, how long have you been homeless? Hmm. And it was such a beautiful moment of me getting to explain that I wasn't. But the idea that when we give kids a chance to ask their questions, this child was willing to go any place with a question. We have to find safe, healthy ways to let kids go anywhere with their questions. If it directs them down the way of what's a compassionate answer for this? Not a simple answer. And not a bleeding heart answer, but a compassionate answer. Understanding what compassion actually means. Well, what does compassion actually mean? How do you define it? Well, compassion, you know, the calm means together or with, and passion means to endure or to suffer. Okay. We want to not just feel something, not to just feel empathy or sympathetic. We want them to go to the next place and have that sympathy or empathy cause them to do something different with the the opportunities in front of them. Hmm. What do you see, Tim, as the difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion? Well, I I think sympathy is about understanding that others are suffering. Empathy is the starting place of compassion. It's more about the ability to take new or caring perspectives and or feel the emotions of others. But compassion is putting that empathy into action, including a strong desire to now help, to Mm -hmm. be part of the answer. Again, understanding that compassion means 
to endure with means we walk alongside each other. And so we don't just want kids to feel bad about this situation. We want them to ask, I wonder how people can help, how we're going to be that for one another. Yeah. You made the comment about terminology and how language is always changing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we get to sympathy and empathy and sometimes mistakenly think we've then arrived at compassion, Mm -hmm. that we are compassionate people, but we've actually stalled out before the action starts, before the compassion begins. Mm, That's a great response. Um, And I know for myself, there are so many options for what I can lean into with my kids directions we can head, opportunities to explore. And I really believe that compassion is what we want for our kids more than anything. So I just see this conversation is so important. What do we lean into with our children? What do we spend our time doing with our children? Hmm. I wonder if there are practical experiences that you could suggest for parents to do with their children that provide them opportunities to actually be acting in a compassionate manner, not just Mm. talking about it, not just feeling about it, but by doing something. Sure. I remember when I was little, my parents would make food to take to other people. I went with them and watched them engage. And I, as a little boy, I actually felt part of it. Mm. I talk at the end of Bent Hope about what a kitchen table revolution is. And that's actually what we need across North America is the kitchen table revolution. Okay, this sounds good. What is it? Well, what happens at the kitchen table is actually what matters most for most of us in our life. That's where we talk about kids' report cards, and that's where we talk about what sports we're going to do and what holidays we're going to take, whatever it is. That also needs to be the place where the conversation looks like we know that your friend down the street is having a hard time How are we going to do something for that family? We know that people in our community are going through this, or the school is going through that. What can we do as a family? So you as a parent would engage with your child in the conversations that are right there. So the world looks massive and terrifying. And what are we going to do about all these things? Well, what are you going to do about the neighborhood and the families and the relationships you have? And so the children will come up with all kinds of answers. Maybe we could do this. Maybe we could bake together. Maybe we could make cards together. I know those seem like small things, but they are the impetus for what comes next Mm. because they start a relationship, which is where we started with poverty of relationships. They deepen the relationships where maybe other people will be trusting enough to say, I could actually use some help with this so we can walk through it. Yeah. Well, part of the beauty of a plan like this is it goes back to that begin with the children concept of Gandhi. Yeah. And as a culture of society, we could do with some fresh new ideas on the social justice table. And our kids, just like they understand technology in a way that we never really will, yeah, yeah. they'll understand social justice in a way that we never likely will because they're living into it in a different time. Absolutely. In your experience of social justice conversations and actions towards that, what are we missing? Mm. Well, the conversation of justice is a wild one. I'll tell you, I've fed a lot of homeless people. I've started programs that feed homeless people. And I've been critiqued that I'm an enabler of people staying homeless. Of course, if you feed and clothe them, 
you're going to make it easier for them to stay there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my version of justice is, I don't know, man, it's hard to think straight when you haven't had something to eat. Uh, I think we need to feed them. Mm-hmm. Justice also looks like this. And it says, some people hunger for food and some people are hungry for something that's not food. Mm-hmm. Love, compassion, belonging, belonging, belonging. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, that word is very important to you. Well, I can see that being a really important part of your conversations in schools. I've heard Brene Brown speak on this. Mm -hmm. She goes into middle schools to actually speak about belonging because so many students feel that they don't belong, even in their own families, which may sometimes speak more to the age and stage of life, but still it's hard. And I I wonder if, if in some sense belonging is even necessary before the actions of compassion. Absolutely. You talk about seeing the world through the eyes of children. I'm just wondering as parents, how do we get ourselves back into those eyes? Yeah. Well, if our kids are afraid to tell us what they're thinking, we're not going to see through their eyes. Why do you think kids are afraid to tell us what they're thinking? Like, what have you seen when you're in the schools? Well, some children would be embarrassed that what they think is stupid or some kids are confused and they don't want to bring up things that they don't understand. That's where I think a parent or an educator's humility goes so far, where we say, you know what, I don't even know the answer. Let me tell you what I think. Mm-hmm. You know, when we do the fear and anxiety stuff, we talk about this project called Fears in a Jar. Mm-hmm. And we as a family are going to put out a jar and we're all going to write down our fears. and We're going to put them in the jar. It's not just the kids are going to write out their fears and put them in the jar. Mom and dad are going to do it too. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to pull them out at supper every night. We'll do one fear. We'll see whichever one comes out and we will discuss this fear. I and sometimes that. it's the child's fear, but sometimes it's mommy or daddy's fear. And it's okay to have these conversations. I think the other thing too, and you started here in the interview, tell me about your childhood experiences. I think sometimes we need to remember our childhoods for better, for worse. I think it's important to go back and recall what we felt in those moments, what we felt at those times. Precious moments from childhood that you remember about who impacts you in your life, right? Mm. I had more bad teachers than good teachers. There is no doubt about it in my life Mm. that I had more poor teachers than good teachers. But I'm telling you, the teachers that were special to me They were life-changing to me as a a little boy. Can you give an example? Sure. Uh, My kindergarten teacher. I love this story. I I wanted you to do this story. Is this about Mrs. Watson? Yes, and the clown on the wall. Yeah. Yeah, this is a great story. Um, (laughs) Bless you for reading all my stuff. Holy (laughs) smoke. My pleasure. Okay. I went to H.J. Alexander (laughs) Public School in Weston, and my kindergarten teacher's name was Mrs. Watson. And as I remember her, she was quite old. (laughs) And uh, we had talked about circuses and we were all going to do an art project. And so we were given paper plates and crayons. And on the paper plates, we could draw anything we wanted that was about a circus. And so I drew a big clown's face on my paper plate. Then we were all to put our paper plates on Mrs. Watson's desk and file out and go out for recess. And when I came in, I was just shocked because over the door was my 
picture and only my pie plate. And during recess, she had made a big red nose and a tissue paper collar because she loved my face so much. And she put it up there. Well, I'm telling you, I remember that day like it was yesterday. Mm. And by the time I was 12 years old, I was selling comic strips to magazines to make money. Well done. And then by the time I was 17, I was accepted into the animation course at Sheridan College, world-renowned animation course. Mm. And the first day I walked into that course, um, all, I was in tears thinking about Mrs. Watson mm. all those years earlier, that my course was charted because one teacher took one recess break to celebrate me. Mm. Earlier, you mentioned the void in society of gentleness. And what was the other word that you used? Gentleness and goodness. Yeah, gentleness and goodness. And listening to that story, it seems like a small thing to acknowledge a child's pie plate clown to celebrate something so minor. Mm. Uh, But I think this is an example of a daily gentleness and goodness. Yeah. There's a a theme to the Compassion Series that I've been using for years, that if we are remembered for this, this will be the greatest legacy we could possibly have. Three things, bring hope, serve well, and celebrate. That this is who we are called to be. And if we bring hope, the only way to really bring hope is to actually walk alongside. If you were really struggling with school and someone said, oh, I hope you do well getting through that, that's different than someone who brings hope by saying, I hope you do well. Can I come and help you study? Can I help prepare you? So now you're not just being hopeful, you're bringing that hope to them. They still have to do the work, but you're walking with them. And the serving well, we're never called to serve. We're always called to serve well. We're always asked to serve at the best capacity we can. And then to celebrate every day, celebrate someone or something. Hmm. What is one thing I can celebrate? One person or one thing. And once we celebrate one another, great compassion grows out of that. When I was working in the group homes with uh, young adults with disabilities, we would celebrate the tiniest things. But I'm telling you, it was like the end of the Olympics, like fireworks went off. We learned how to celebrate Mm. and celebrate these small victories for the frontline street workers who I want to make sure in this interview I give tribute to because we spent a lot of time on homelessness. They have to celebrate the small victories. I left so many young people on the streets. I failed so many times, but you just would quit if you didn't celebrate the small victories. And sometimes it would be that that a young person after 10 years on the streets finally tells you his story. There's my small victory. Hmm. So, but I don't think that's different than all of our lives. We have to celebrate our small victories. Hmm. We have to celebrate them in front of our children and with our children. We have to find ways to celebrate small victories. Hmm. That could be a wrap, I think. I think that could be our wrap right there. Okay, (laughs) Tim, I love that. Bring hope, serve well, celebrate. I think we're going to end there. Thank you so much for your time today. I have so enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Rachel. It has been a really, really lovely experience getting to talk with you and working with you and Roy on this. I'm really appreciative. Bless you. Thank you so much.
Rachel, I've been thinking about Tim's comment about raising the next generation to look through the lens of compassion, mm. as he calls it. Yeah, great comment. I love that. There's a quote from Einstein describing compassion as what we need in order to thrive as humans, as, as a species. Mm. He says this, our task must be to free ourselves by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in all its beauty. Mm. It's significant that he calls this our task. Yeah, and that task is what Tim is all about, yes. I think. Widening our circles, that's descriptive language. Great quote. Well, Einstein is a fantastic resource for thought-provoking words. Yeah, he is. So with thanks to Tim, and as we end this episode, Human Family is a poem by Maya Angelou. That Tim loves. And he uses in schools to support his compassion series and the task before us to grow in compassion. And we thought we would end this episode sharing that poem with a recorded reading by Maya Angelou herself. Mm -hmm. Her voice is so powerful. Yes, as are her words. I love the visual of Tim standing in front of an elementary school classroom sharing mm. this poem. Thank you so much for your conversation, Tim. Filled with gentleness and goodness. Yep, that's right. Human family. I note the obvious differences in the human family. Some of us are serious. Some thrive on comedy. Some declare their lives are lived as true profundity. And others claim they really live the real reality. The variety of our skin tones can confuse, bemuse, delight. Brown and pink and beige and purple, tan and blue and white. I've sailed upon the seven seas and stopped in every land. I've seen the wonders of the world, not yet one common man. I know 10,000 women called Jane and Mary Jane. I've not seen any two who really were the same. Mirror twins are different, although their features jibe, and lovers think quite different thoughts while lying side by side. We love and lose in China, we weep on England's moors, and laugh and moan in Guinea, and thrive on Spanish shores. We seek success in Finland, are born and die in Maine. In minor ways we differ, in major we're the same. I note the obvious differences between each sort and type, but we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. We are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. We are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. I'm Rachel Cram. I'm Roy Salmon. And thank you so much for listening to Family 360. We share quotes and links from all of our guests on Family 360 on our website, Facebook, and Instagram. Join us. We'd love to continue the conversation with you.